Good morning and welcome to each one of you. It's good to see you here. It's good to see a number of visitors here with you. I trust that you can enjoy and, um, the time here and our worship together. <clears throat> Don't know if, well, I'm sure that you have thought about it, but there are some very unique and almost bizarre stories in Scripture. Um, as you read throughout the Bible. And I'm going to be looking at one of those this morning. But the purpose of these stories is not just for our reading pleasure or for um, the intrigue or whatever may be about the story. But they all show us something about God. And that's what we want to look at uh, this morning and uh, I've entitled this morning's message, Amazing Love. And we're going to be looking at the prophet Hosea this morning. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Hosea. It's the first of the minor prophets, comes right after Daniel. And we're going to be thinking about and, and looking at this story, um, not going to be maybe somewhat of an over it's kind of an overview of the story but really focused on the first three chapters uh, of this book and the prophet Hosea just a little bit of historical context or uh, setting all we really know about this the setting is in verse one and uh, this is what we know about Hosea and this is what we know about when this happened the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So uh, this is, this is what, what the context of this is. Hosea's prophetic career or his time of ministry spanned probably 30 to 40 years because it mentions four kings, in spe specifically the kings of Judah. That would have been in the southern kingdom. He was in the northern kingdom of Israel, and Jeroboam would have been the first king. Following that, uh, it was more um, tumultuous in the northern kingdom. So he, it began sometime, Hosea's prophecy began sometime during the reign of Jeroboam II. This is the second king named Jeroboam. And he was king of Israel in the northern kingdom somewhere between, uh, or between 782 and 753 B.C. And Hezekiah, it must have spanned up into Hezekiah because that's mentioned. Hezekiah became king in Judah in 716 B.C. So during this time is when um, Hosea was, was prophesying. During the reign of Jeroboam, even though he was a wicked king, the northern king, the northern kingdom experienced a bit of a golden age. There was a period during his reign of peace and prosperity not experienced since the days of Solomon. And, and so that, that, is, that is the setting for when, that's when Hosea's ministry began there in the, uh, in the northern kingdom. But with this prosperity came incredible moral decay. 
Israel turned away from wholly following God and started worshiping other idols or, and, and were worshiping other idols. After Jeroboam, even though that was a time of rather uh, of stability, there was a period of almost anarchy uh, or lawlessness that followed the reign of Jeroboam. There were a number of kings in a short period of time right after this, most of them being murdered or assassinated. They may have reigned from a couple of months to a couple of years, but it was just uh, very tumultuous, and everyone became a law unto themselves. And so Hosea was sent, or was put here, or was called to warn the northern kingdom of their offensive uh, sin and their impending captivity by the Assyrians, which uh, the northern kingdom was fell to the Assyrians in about 722 BC. So this would have, probably they were carried into captivity prior to the end of Hosea's um, ministry. Also, during the time, during the life of Hosea, Isaiah and Micah were prophets in the southern kingdom. So he would have lived at the same time as Isaiah and Micah, even during the, and the prophecies. And so uh, that's, that's a little bit of the, the setting that we find ourselves here. We don't know much about, we don't really know anything about Hosea beyond what is recorded in this book. And we, his father, the name is uh, unrecorded or is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. But God called Hosea to be a prophet, and clearly he had a love for God that was not typical within the northern kingdom at this time, and that's why God called him. Given the fact that his ministry spanned 30 to 40 years, I think it's safe to assume that there were probably, that this man, Hosea, was probably in his 20s uh, when God called him and spoke to him. And we have record of that in the second and third verse then. And this is where the story takes a very unique twist. And it's like, really? When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Didliam. Here, God is asking Hosea, a godly man, to go marry a whore, an adulteress, a prostitute. What do you think was going through the mind of Hosea when he received this message? What was God asking him to do? And, um, I mean, we don't know. There's not a lot of uh, details around this story. But God was wanting to make an object lesson out of their marriage to communicate to Israel what was really going on between God and Israel. And so that's what he asked him to do. Now... um, there, as you read, as I read some commentaries and stuff, there is so much speculation around this story. And, I mean, while, 
we can infer or assume certain things, we don't know a lot of details. And so while I'm going to mention some things here, but I, I really want to try not to read into the text what isn't there. Some would argue that this is all figurative, that this really is not even an actual marriage, that Gomer was not a real person, that this is all allegorical. I don't see anything in this recording of this that would lend any credence to that. Now, what is less clear and what we don't know is whether <clears throat> Gomer was a prostitute at the time that Hosea married her or if she became a prostitute later on. That is not clear from the text. Um, and so we, we just simply don't know for certain. Given the object lesson that is intended here, I would, I would tend to believe that she was probably not a prostitute, didn't become a prostitute until after they were married, which would more illustrate the story of Israel. First of all, it was against the Old Testament law to marry a prostitute, and that seems inconsistent that God would ask Hosea to do that. Secondly, uh, the analogy of God's covenant relationship with Israel, they were faithful at first and later walked away. But what we do know is that God speaks and Hosea obeys. There's not a record of questions being asked. There's not the question of why. There's not doubts expressed. We don't know how Hosea chose his wife. We don't know how he met her. But we do know that Hosea obeyed God and married Gomer. I assume their marriage started out in a good place. And um, the reason, you know, for this whole marriage is to make, like I mentioned already, is to make this marriage an object lesson for Israel, to give them a picture of how Israel had treated and mistreated God. <clears throat> they had three children. And we'll get to that here in the next couple of verses. Here again, some speculate that these children, or at least the second and third born, were a result of Gomer's unfaithfulness and immorality. Uh, there's nothing in the text that supports that. I believe that they had these children together. The names were chosen by God, which portrayed something about the character of Israel as well, and the prophecy and I don't believe that these are the names that either Hosea or Gomer would have probably come up with themselves as we look at this. It was left up to them. But these children were also a part of the object lesson in communicating the displeasure God had with the sin going on in Israel. So let's start again uh, in verse 4, or the last part of verse 3. As she conceived and bare him a son, and the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and the name is No Mercy. 
Now, the King James and some other translations have the word lo haruma or rahuma, rahema, something like that. Um, and that is just a transliteration of the Hebrew letters. So that's not being translated, but, that, uh, but it's the Hebrew letters just transliterated into English letters. But it means no mercy. So call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, and here again this is the same situation, not my people. The, word, the prefix low in front of uh, both of these names, no mercy and not my people, is the negative um, is, is a negative prefix. It says, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. <clears throat> so Jezreel was the firstborn son, and that was a reminder pointing back to 2 Kings 9 and 10, when Jehu sinned in murdering more people than what God intended or what God instructed um, in the valley of Jezreel. And so that's what that points back to, and it's, it's a reminder of that. The bow says that the bow will, uh, he will break the bow. That represents the, um, I mean, that's the primary symbol of power in warfare. And uh, so breaking the bow symbolizes that Israel's loss of power uh, that was going to come as a result of this. So the second-born daughter, Lo-Ruhama, uh, means no mercy. And so this represents God's message to the Jews if they don't repent of their affair with idols. God said he is no longer going to have mercy on the house of Israel he, to forgive them at all. And then the third-born son, Lo-Ama, means not my people. God says to call him that because Israel is no longer his people and he is not their God. So Israel had been God's people for more than 500 years. God covenanted with them that he would protect them and bless the nation as long as they obeyed the laws of God. Uh, Leviticus 26.12 says, And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. But it was contingent on them obeying and following what God want, got what God asked. Now that relationship was about to be severed because of their disobedience to God. The Bible Knowledge Commentary points this out, that the last clause there in verse 9, I am not your God. Literally, if you would translate it word for word, it would be, and I am not capital I am to you. I am not I am to you. So uh, they had forsaken, uh, they had walked away from God. So whether Gomer remained faithful to Hosea until after the birth of their third child, we don't know for, with any certainty. But regardless, at some point, 
Gomer began practicing prostitution and living a reprehensible life of immorality. Perhaps on the sly at first, hoping that Hosea wouldn't find out, but at some point he did find out, and at some point she didn't even care who knew. She flaunted her promiscuous lifestyle openly and with pride. And just imagine what kind of position that left Hosea and the children in. She left her husband and three children to selfishly pursue her own pleasures. Some would even say that her children followed in her footsteps. Again, we don't know that, but given the way that it's described as children of whoredom in verse 2, so we don't know whether they did or didn't. But regardless, it had a significant impact on them. And how Isaiah, Hosea responded here, you know, it's, it's just interesting. Knowing that she was vividly portraying exactly what Israel was doing to God I'm sure it didn't make it any easier. Yes, he realized that, but the anger and the disappointment, the hurt, the betrayal that he felt was real. He loved his wife, and he did not want this to happen. I'm confident that he did everything within his power to talk her out of what she was doing and to make different choices. According to the law, she had every right, he had every right to divorce her. But apparently he didn't do so. But she walked out on him. She abandoned him for a life of sin. So that's, that's the setting we have here in the first uh, nine verses of, um, of Hosea. Verse 10 then, abruptly the tone shifts. And now it's, it's, it's like, and throughout Hosea here, you see this, is that it goes into detail about the sin and the transgressions, but then comes back and says, shows the hope, the salvation, the, the repentance, what, is, what can be done. And we see this here in verses 10 through uh, chapter 2, verse 1. God's declaring that someday the effects of these judgments that he's pronouncing are going to be reversed. So there's hope here even though there's the condemnation right now. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. They're going to prosper. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, pointing back to the third child, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, a unification of the nation of Israel. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And then verse 1, Say to your brothers, Ami, the low is missing. In other words, say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. And so here he's uh, taking the names of those two children and reversing them and and again, promising that you are my people, you have received mercy. So there's hope when there's repentance and recognition for, of sin for what it is. <clears throat> We're going to focus a bit here on chapter 2 now. 
the next 11 verses describe in some detail how Israel is like an unfaithful wife chasing after other lovers. And as I was reading this and studying this, it seems like it's pretty clearly talking about Israel, but I also wonder how much of it is a description of what was going on with Gomer as well. I don't, we don't know that for sure. But as the guilt of their sin is confirmed or verified, God announces punishment for their sin. And the purpose of God's judgment on these people, on Israel, is to draw them back to himself to restore that covenantal relationship that he had with them. But in order to draw them back, the reality of the magnitude of their sin has to be grasped somehow. They have to recognize that this is serious. This is not just a little thing. If we don't know how badly we've sinned, we really can't have the level of remorse that is required or what God needs us to have to understand our sinfulness. So starting out here in verse 2, it's as though God is speaking through one of the children, uh, one of their children and or one of the children of Israel, a following generation. So read the next 11 verse down through verse 13. Plead with your mother, plead. For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are the children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge her up in a way, uh, her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which was used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast of days the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. There's a number of comments I could make from this. I'm not going to go through this in any kind of detail. I do want to point out verse 5, where it talks about, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Here, Gomer 
or Israel was looking to other gods for bread and water, physical nourishment, for wool and flax, for protection, and for oil and drink, for pleasure. So they were looking somewhere beyond God for these. And, uh, and then it talks about that they put a hedge of thorns and a wall in the way so that she, they could no longer, she could no longer go after that. But the interesting thing is that God is the one that had provided the bread and the water, the wool and the flax, the oil and the drink. And yet here they were trying to find that fulfillment or whatever. It was misused um, to serve other gods and taking the focus and the gratitude away from the one who gave it. And then the last verse there, Israel and Gomer went after other lovers and forgot God. Both of them did that. They, they forgot their husband. Um, they forgot the one that was betrothed to them. Now, jumping ahead a little bit, and this is not right here in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, um, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And here's just a partial list of some of the sins pointed out here. And I find it interesting that five of the Ten Commandments are listed here in just several words, in about six words. Um, They were violating the commandments. And so what God is trying to do is get them to the point of of desperation where they again look to God and that he will then take steps in restoring them. Now notice what happens, how again the tone changes in verse uh, 14 when God pours himself into the idea of wooing Israel back to himself. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth and as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth to you I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you, you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and will, I will have mercy on no mercy And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So here we have the the repentance and the calling back to 
and the restoration of relationship with God. Verses uh, 19 and 20 here, it talks about betrothing with righteousness and justice and steadfast love and faithfulness is a complete reversal from what we see the condemnation in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where it says there is no faithfulness, there is no steadfast love. Here God is saying, I will betroth you in righteousness, in faithfulness, in steadfast love. And then the last verse is just beautiful to me in that the meanings of these two youngest children, no mercy and not my people, are simply reversed. It says, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And in response, they say, you are my God. Now, let's go on to chapter 3. And this is a very short chapter, and uh, this is kind of the end of the story of Gomer, as um, per se. But again, just a fascinating development in this rather bizarre story. And the Lord said to me, Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to any other man so will I also be with you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and his goodness and to his goodness in the latter days. So after... Hosea's wife had been gone for some time, and we have no idea how long. It could have been a year. It could have been multiple years. It could have been a couple of decades. We don't know. But God again comes to Hosea and says, Go again. Love a woman, which is really his wife, who is loved by another man, and she's likely living with him. Now, what kind of, a, think about the task that Hosea was given here, is to go and love this woman who has totally betrayed everything that, uh, anything love that was ever there. And Hosea responds, again, he obeys. And he goes and buys his wife from a man who is selling her as a slave. He redeems her. He buys his adulterous wife back. He takes her home. He protects her. He cares for her. He loves her. And I believe God redeems their marriage. And that is a beautiful picture of exactly what God wants to do, wanted to do, and intended to do 
with Israel, with the nation of Israel, and their betrayal of, uh, of God. To me, this story is just amazing. When you think, to think that God, like a husband, is able to love and to woo his adulterous wife back after she has turned her back on him, walked away, and just openly lived in sin and immorality in so many ways. It doesn't happen automatically, but the redeeming, because it does require repentance on, on the part of the wife, but it is a turning away from sin, from the sin that is so revolting to God. You know, God's love is just simply amazing. It is perfect. It is total. It is just. However, I'm going to throw out something for you to think about, and you can challenge me on this. Um, I don't believe that God's love is completely unconditional. We hear that God's love is unconditional. And, uh, for, you know, God unconditionally loves those who confess their sins, who come to him in repentance and obedience and follow him. There's no question about that. Neither does he quit loving those who refuse to do so. However, God's amazing love also requires justice and judgment and punishment for the unconfessed sin. Our culture has twisted, manipulated, deformed, redefined, misconstrued the definition of love to fit what is comfortable to us. Um, in our preferred and limited understanding of what it really is, we've made it more into what we would like it to be. And, and God is love, and it is perfect, and it is, it is right. But that does, you know, what is God's love? We hear the questions like, you know, how could a loving God condemn anyone to hell? Well, that's really not even a, a fair question in a lot of ways. I, in my mind, a better question is, and maybe in the answer, is whether God would be loving to overlook and ignore sin against him, um, which in his mind, in his eyes, I mean, according to this prophecy, sin is like a prostitute, like chasing immorality and going into prostitution. You know, is, would that be love if God didn't address that? And I think this book and this story of Hosea shows the depth of God's amazing love for his people. But right along with that, that love, that amazing love, cannot tolerate any rivals. There cannot be anyone else in that relationship. It, it, has, to be, it has to be a pure relationship. We spent quite a bit of time looking at Hosea and Gomer and God's relationship with Israel, but what about us today? You know, Israel... Here is considered God's bride in the Old Testament, but the church is called the bride of Christ in the New Testament. So the object lesson of Hosea and Gomer, I think, translates very well to the church today. 
the warnings, the judgments, the realities and the consequences of sin, those, those are still here. At the, same t- at the time of Isaiah, Israel would have been saying that they were serving God. In the eyes of, of the northern kingdom, they were serving God in their own way. They had not totally abandoned God. Rather, they had supplemented their worship of God with other things. Uh, they looked to, some, to other gods for some things, like rain and for fertile crops. They looked to Baal. And so it wasn't like they didn't worship God at all, but it was just that they worshiped other things as well. And from Hosea's prophecy here, we can see that in the eyes of God, to God, that was the equivalent of a wife giving herself to prostitution. So how does this affect us Christians here in the United States? Um, I don't know all of you here, but I doubt that any of us have any little or big statues of wood or stone that we worship in our houses or that we bring sacrifices to. That's just not an issue for us today. In the Old Testament, it was. But does that mean that idolatry doesn't exist today? Absolutely not. If anything, I'd say idolatry is more prevalent today than ever before, and Christians are certainly not immune of that. A definition, or what, and I just coined this, and I didn't really do any, much, a lot of research, but to me, idolatry is that which keeps us from God. It, or becomes something that comes between us and God. The first and greatest command is that we love God with everything within us, with our whole being. So anything that hinders us from loving God with our whole being is an idol. And looking around our nation and our culture, there's significant idols all around us. And not all of these directly affect us as believers, and very gratefully. But I believe that there's idols within our country, our culture. Um, sports, in a lot of ways, has become a national religion. Postmodernism, the idea of the relativity of truth, that there is no absolute truth, is something Idol, uh, is an idol in our culture. Science and evolution. Um, even abortion rights has become almost a religion or an idol. And then certainly the whole LGBTQ and the gender identity agenda is, is an idol in our culture, in the culture around us. But then what about us? I mean, that doesn't necessarily affect us as believers. Let me ask you, if in your average day last week or the last month, you worked nine to ten hours and you slept six or seven hours, that left eight hours of time for you to do with whatever you wanted. What did you do with those eight hours? Or when you wake up in the morning, think through the typical first 30 to 60 minutes of your day. What do you do? What do you think? What goes through your mind? Or the last hour before you go to bed. How much of that time is focused on our relationship with God or on others, which is the second command, or on my own interests? 
And I think the answers to these questions could shed some light on what's most important or what is my God or what is the idol in my heart. As I was thinking about it, I was convicted that idolatry is a lot more general than specific types of idols, I believe. Um, For the believer, for the disciple of Christ, we have to be aware of the trap and allurement of idolatry, which is adultery or prostitution in the eyes of God. Idolatry is anything that takes away or minimizes, takes away from or minimizes our relationship with God. I jotted down a few things here, and this list is far from, but I think even habitual busyness can be an idol. It keeps us from our relationship with God. Distractions, just in general. What distracts us? What catches our attention? Those are the things that keep us from prayer, from Bible reading, from church life. Technology, internet, smartphones, social media, entertainment, YouTube, our careers, fashion, our image, our status, uh, prosperity, materialism. There, there's a host of things, but what is it? What are those things that get in the way of and takes away from time that we sh- would like to or should spend with God? As we start thinking about those things that take away from God with the visual object lesson of Hosea and Gomer, I think that we do well to ask ourselves what our actions and our choices communicate to God. Because God cannot tolerate sin. He can't tolerate idolatry. And it is nothing different than adultery or prostitution in his eyes. I'd like to just take a few minutes here in closing to read several other verses scattered throughout the rest of the book of Hosea that we did not look into to kind of point out, number one, what the condition of our hearts when we are focused on idolatry or unrepentant are, and then also what God, how God wants to restore that. I'll just mention these and read through these uh, quickly. Hosea 5.4 Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Verse 15 of chapter 5 I will return again to my place, God speaking, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. You have plowed, chapter 10, verse 13, you have plowed iniquity, but you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. And then chapter 11, verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all because they're bent on turning away. Now the flip side. 
God speaking. Chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. Chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up the fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Verse 6 of chapter 12. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. And then the last verse of the book. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. My challenge to you this morning is that God is a God of amazing love and wants a restored relationship with each one of us. Um, we have, but we have to come to him in repentance, uh, acknowledging the sins that are present in our lives, if there are those sins, and acknowledge those as sin, first of all, and I would say as idolatry, and maybe even acknowledge that they're equivalent to prostitution in the eyes of God. God will forgive us. He will restore. He wants to love us passionately. But the choice is up to us because the initiative has to be on our part in, uh, in repenting and, uh, and asking him to forgive. Let's stand together for a closing prayer. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your amazing love to each one of us. A love not deserved in so many ways. But you loved us in our sin. You want to woo us. You are wooing us back to you. You want to restore a beautiful relationship that has been marred by sin. And I just pray as we live our lives, as you, as the Holy Spirit examines our, our hearts, that you would reveal those areas of idolatry in our lives that are keeping us from this uh, beautiful relationship with you that are hindering our relationship. It's not that we've turned completely away from you, but what is it, what stands in the way? What do we allow to distract from and take away from that relationship with you? Just pray that you would uh, remind us of this example of Hosea and Gomer as we go about our days and that you could use this as a way of drawing us closer to you and making us more aware of your uh, love for us as well as your, uh, your view of sin and how horrible it is in your eyes. We thank you and ask that you dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.